Hello everyone, this is Crystal and welcome back to All Things Dark Podcast. Before we get started, I just want to thank everyone for their support. Every single time that you listen to an episode, like, comment, and share on my Facebook page, I grow my reach, which in turn grows my podcast as a whole. If not for you, I would not be successful at this. And I just want to tell you all that I appreciate you so very much. With that said, let's get started on today's episode. I'm going to be talking about the Lacey Peterson murder case. Lacey Peterson was eight months pregnant when she disappeared from her home. And the entire nation was watching and hoping and praying that she would come home safely. Unfortunately, that would not happen. And eventually, her husband, Scott, would be arrested and tried for her murder. So come along with me while I discuss the Lacey Peterson murder case. Lacey Denise Rocco was born March 4, 1975 in Modesto, California to parents Dennis and Sharon. She has four siblings, Brent, Amy, Nathan, and Darren. Lacey's parents split when she was two and their divorce was finalized when she was seven. Lacey's mom eventually remarried and she married a man named Ron Gransky. Her family got along very well. So well, in fact, that when Ron died, her father, Dennis, went to his grave and thanked him privately privately for the love and care that he gave to Lacey. They all just loved her very much. And it wasn't just Lacey's family that loved her. It was her friends and everyone that she went to school with. She was a cheerleader in junior and high school, so she was pretty popular. And everyone remembers her as always smiling and being kind and giving and generous. In fact, When anyone talks about Lacey, they talk about how she was always smiling. She's known for her smile. She graduated from Thomas Downey High School and enrolled in California Polytech State University. When um, she was at Polytech, she met Scott. But we'll get to that in a minute because I want to tell you a little bit about Scott's childhood as well. Scott grew up in a upper middle class family. He was a Cub Scout. He was a little leaker. He loved golf and he loved going deep sea fishing. But golf really was his love and he became very good at it. By 14, he was besting his father on the course. And by the time he graduated high school, he was one of the top junior golfers in San Diego. Everyone who knew Scott will tell you that he was an overachiever and he excelled at everything he did. His dad, in a very rare interview, said, We tell him, you're a lucky man. He never got in a scrape. He was like Mr. Perfect all the time. By all accounts, Scott Peterson was a perfect child. He didn't get in trouble. He got good grades. And he attracted a ton of people to him. And that includes the ladies, of course. One of his ex-girlfriends, Lauren, said he was charming absolutely charming, handsome, the most driven man I'd ever known until then. While in college at Cal Poly, as I said, Lacey and Scott met. They had first met at a party and then later at a small restaurant called Pacific Cafe in Morrow Bay. Lacey was the one to actually make the first move. She gave Scott her phone number in hopes that he would call her back and he did a few days later. And the thing is, none of their dates really went smoothly. She got sick while they were deep sea fishing one time. And speaking of that, she didn't like deep sea fishing and she didn't like golf. Their hobbies really didn't align with each other and that kind of created a problem, but it wasn't big enough 
to break the bond that they had made. They became very close. And she called her mother one day and said, Mother, I have met the man I'm going to marry. You've just got to come down here and meet him. Everyone in both of their families approved of this relationship. They thought they were perfect and they loved them together. Lacey's brother Brent said he was like the perfect gentleman who would take care of her. And Scott's brother Joe said that Lacey came off as always polite and smiling. They loved each other and their families loved them together. So it was no surprise that two years into their relationship in December of 1996, Scott proposed and the following year on August 9th, they got married at a hot spring. Lacey was just months from graduating. Scott's brother-in-law, Ed, said, I vividly remember Scott carrying Lacey up to their room at the end of the wedding. He's shouting and happy and she's laughing and we're all worried he's going to drop her. But he kept her safe in his arms. And that's the way everybody saw them. Scott keeping Lacey safe. Scott and Lacey happy. And that is the image that they gave off. Because as far as Lacey was concerned, that is exactly how everything was. The Petersons went to Tahiti for their honeymoon. And when they came back, they opened a burger joint. And they had that business and it succeeded until 2000 when they decided that they were going to sell it and move to Modesto to be closer to Lacey's family. Scott started working as a fertilizer salesman for Trade Corp and she became a substitute teacher at a nearby elementary school. They bought a three-bedroom house together and with her interior design skills and his woodworking skills, they were building this house to be their dream house and they were working this side by side and were just a great team. Everyone was once again seeing just how happy they were. It was at this point that they also started trying for a family but had trouble conceiving and it wasn't until 2002 that Lacey became pregnant with their first child, a boy they were going to name Connor. Both of them were so happy and so excited that Scott went to every single one of her doctor's appointments and he went to every single Lamont's class with her. He was the most excited expectant father ever. And according to the families, there was no reason to suspect that there was any problems, but there was. Scott had begun an affair with a massage therapist named Amber Fry in November of that year. Lacey was seven months pregnant at the time. And both families maintained that they did not know that there was an affair going on and that Lacey didn't know there was an affair going on. In December of that year, Scott and Amber were photographed together at a holiday party and they were every bit the happy couple. They just looked like a normal everyday couple. And Amber said at this point, he had told her that his wife was dead and he was single. So now we're gonna jump into the timeline of everything that happened from the day that Lacey disappeared until this year because there's actually been some updates to this case. Lacey was 27 years old, and as I said, eight months pregnant when she disappeared. It was on December 23rd that she was last heard from by anyone but Scott. She was last talked to her mother and her sister, Amy. And the next day, December 24th, Scott called the police and reported Lacey missing from their home. He claims that he last saw her mopping the floor and she was planning on walking the dog when he left 
for a fishing trip to Berkeley Marina. Their dog was actually found running around. So investigators looking at this dog and they're thinking something must have happened because Lacey would not leave her beloved pet outside. So they're thinking something must have happened here and it may not be good. On the 26th, they get a search warrant for the Peterson home and they go in and they search it. And I think this is just kind of a broad strokes investigation here. They're trying to figure out if maybe she left on her own and it was in a hurry and that's why the dog was outside or if something may have happened. I really think that's what this search was about. It wasn't really a, she's met a bad end so we have to search the house to make sure there's not evidence in there kind of search. On the 28th, investigators are searching the water near Berkeley Marina. Remember, this is where Scott said he had gone on that fishing trip. This is the now infamous fishing trip. So they go and they search the water for the very first time. On the 31st, investigators begin treating Lacey's disappearance as foul play. And they say they have not ruled out other possibilities. So they're not saying it was foul play, but they're saying they're keeping everything open. Maybe she left. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe she did meet with foul play. So they're keeping a very open mind. On January 3rd, the investigators are still looking through the water near Berkeley Marina, and the police in Modesto are asking the public if anyone can come forward and verify Scott's whereabouts leading up to Christmas. On the 14th, their search expands to Southern California. So they're still looking in the water. They're asking anyone about any information pertaining to Scott's whereabouts, and now they're expanding their search. So they're really looking for Lacey everywhere they can. On the 17th, Lacey's family holds a press conference and they demand publicly that Scott come forward and talk to investigators about what he knows about Lacey's disappearance because they believe he knows more than he is saying. And they are telling him he needs to let them know what you know so that Lacey can come home. On the 18th, Investigators say that they suspect Scott may have been involved in the 1996 disappearance of a woman in the same area of California, but then they later rule him out as having any involvement. On the 19th, Scott starts to lead a search for Lacey in Los Angeles. So the police are looking in different areas and now Scott has decided, well, we need to look for Lacey in Los Angeles. On the 23rd, Lacey's family reveals that they were told, Scott told investigators, he had been seeing another woman. So this is a big bombshell in this case that has just been dropped. Scott Peterson is cheating on his wife. So now I think the public's thinking, yep, Scott has something to do with this disappearance and he has a mystery, so it all looks really shady. On the 24th, his mistress, Amber Fry does an interview with CNN and she says she's the other woman that Scott has been seeing. She tells them she started seeing him on November 20th and that he told her he was single at the time. On the 28th, Scott does his own interview and he's talking publicly about his and Amber's relationship and he claims that he told Lacey all about the affair and it was, quote, it wasn't anything that would break us apart. So Lacey's family is maintaining that she knew nothing about the affair and that she wouldn't be happy about it. 
but Scott's saying that's not true. I told her about the affair and she didn't care. February 5th. Lacey's family says that Scott sold her car and is now considering selling their house. This is odd behavior. Your wife is just missing. She could come back at any moment and you're selling her car and talking about selling her house. That does not come off as someone desperately hoping their spouse comes home. February 10th would have been the day that Lacey was due to give birth. And unfortunately, she's still missing. And her family, they don't know if she's had Connor. And they don't know if she's hurt or even alive. And I know that they've been worried and scared this entire time. But I bet this day was so much harder for them. Because they would have been with Lacey and Connor. They would have been holding him and meeting him and supporting her as she went through birth. And I just cannot imagine how that felt. February 17th, Jackie Peterson, Scott's mother, tells the Associated Press that she and other members of Scott's family believe that Lacey is being held captive by kidnappers until the baby is born. Now, we all know there have been cases where women have been murdered and the baby forcefully taken from her body or where she is being held captive until she has the baby. But I think it's quite obvious at this point that this is not what is happening in regards to Lacey and I don't know if they actually believe this or if this was just to take some of the heat off of Scott but this is what she is saying publicly on February 18th there is a search warrant given for the Peterson home once again and this time they comb through this house very very well and per CNN they take measurements and collect as much evidence as possible a total of 95 items are removed from the Peterson home. March 4th, the Carroll's son Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation is offering a $50,000 reward for any information that leads to Lacey. And this is in addition to the $500,000 reward that is already being given for her safe return. So people are offering money just to get information about where she could be. On March 6th, the Modesto police officially declare Lacey's case a homicide. They are now treating this as a murder because she has been gone for so long. March 12th, investigators once again are searching San Francisco Bay. They believe she is in or near the water and they keep going back there time and time again. April 13th. While walking their dog in Point Isabel Regional Shoreline Park, north of Berkeley, a couple find a decomposing body of a late-term fetus. I cannot imagine what it was like finding the baby like that. This part is always so hard for me to talk about because this is a baby. And they just found him lying there like that and I couldn't imagine how that messes with you emotionally and mentally to, to, to see that and it gets even worse per an anonymous source the baby's head was encircled by a loop and a half of plastic that is just so horrifying to even think about 
On April 14th, the very next day, Lacey's body is found. ABC News obtained autopsy photographs, and in those photos it shows Lacey's head was missing, as were parts of her limb. So, they find the baby, and then they find Lacey. This is a double blow to her family. This is not the outcome that they were hoping for. They were hoping she was alive somewhere. Four days later, on April 18th, Scott is apprehended in La Jolla, California. And this is near his mother's home in San Diego, but it's also near the border. And it's obvious that he was trying to get to the border because he had dyed his hair blonde as well as his beard. In the car that he'd been driving, he had approximately $15,000 in cash, his brother's ID card, and multiple cell phones. It was on this day, later in the day, that it is officially confirmed that the bodies that were found are those of Lacey and Connor. On April 21st, in a brief arraignment hearing, Scott pleads not guilty to two counts of capital murder. He also says that he cannot afford a lawyer and he's given a public defender. Now, on May 2nd, a celebrity, a celebrity lawyer by the name of Mark Garagos, I hope I said that right, joins his team. Now remember, Scott said that he can't afford a lawyer. This lawyer is big time. He has had clients such as Renona Ryder and Robert Downey Jr. as his clientele. And he had just been on TV talking about the Peterson case and giving an analysis. And now he is saying that he's been hired by the defendant's family. So if they could afford a lawyer, why did Scott say that he couldn't? On November 18th, Scott is ordered to stand trial. And this is following 11 days of testimony from investigators, family members, and neighbors. The judge determines that the prosecutors have shown there is probable cause to make him stand trial, and so he tells Scott that he is going to. December 19th, Lacey's mom files a wrongful death claim. She is acting as both an individual and the administrator of her daughter's estate, and she's seeking more than $5 million in damages. Per her lawyer, she said she wants to make sure justice is done, whether it's in a civil court or a criminal court. As a parent, I can understand this. She's probably thinking they may not get Scott on these charges, and if they don't, I want to have some kind of justice for Lacey. So I absolutely cannot blame her for what she did. January 20th, Scott's trials moved to San Mateo County. And the reason is because the judge agrees that in his hometown, he's probably not going to get a fair trial. I mean, everyone is basically calling for Scott's blood. They believe that he killed Lacey and Connor and they want to see him charged with their murder. So they move it 90 miles away to San Mateo County. June 1st, Scott's trial begins, and in their opening statement, the prosecution says that Scott sought a responsibility-free life by killing his wife and soon-to-be son, Connor, and that he dumped her body in the bay after he weighted it down. The following day, his lawyer states that his client's 
boorish behavior is not really proof of murder. And he even offers a preview of the medical evidence he has that points to Connor being born after Lacey is reported missing. June 23rd, a juror is removed because he is seen talking to Lacey's brother outside of the courtroom. His name is Justin Falconer, the juror is, and this is not allowed. If you are on the jury for a case, but especially a murder case, you are not allowed to talk to anyone involved. And Lacey's brother is very involved. This is his sister's murder trial. So they dismissed him. But he shoots down the defense's request for a mistrial due to unfavorable news reports, noting we have to live with the media. And he is right. When you have a profile case, you're just going to have to deal with the media and do your best despite that. August 10th, and the, on the first day of her testimony, of seven days, Amber takes the stand. This is the first day of her testimony. And she has celebrity lawyer Gloria Allard. I think we all know who she is. So this is the second big name lawyer involved in this case. On that day, she, reveal, she reveals details of what she calls her fairy tale first date with Scott. And she also talks about his claims of being a widower and numerous other lies that he told her. Her testimony is backed up by 12 hours of recorded phone calls played for the jury. So this is an amazing development. She is not only giving her testimony, she's backing it up with phone calls that she recorded. I don't think the defense was very happy with that, but there was nothing they could do about it, and it hurt their case tremendously. October 21st, the defense puts a medical expert on the stand, and he flubs badly, really badly. Following the opening statement from Scott's lawyer, they call a legal expert who they say is going to prove that the baby was born after Lacey disappeared. They in fact say that Connor died no earlier than December 29th, 2002. That proves they said that Lacey was alive after she was reported missing. But that testimony did not go well for the witness because he admitted that he relied on hearsay to pinpoint the date of the pregnancy test. And even at one point during cross-examination, tells the prosecutor, quote, to cut me some slack. Seriously, you cannot go by hearsay. And as an expert, you should know that. You shouldn't have even tried to pull that. That was never going to work. And it hurt the defense's case so badly. November 3rd. Jury deliberations begin and things start off a little wild. So after five months and more than 180 witnesses that were called to the stand, the jury is finally going to determine Scott's fate. But on November 9th, juror Fran Gorman is dismissed for misconduct. And it is later revealed that the reason for that is because she was conducting her own separate research. You cannot do that. 
just like you cannot talk to anyone involved in the case, you are not allowed to conduct your own research. They tell you you cannot read about the case, talk about the case, or watch media about the case. She is replaced by alternate Rochelle Nice. Keep that name in mind because it's going to come back in a big way later on during the case. The day after Gorman is dismissed, Gregory Jackson, who is the foreman of the jury, removes himself because he says he has had repeated clashes with fellow jurors. So this is going smoothly. They are losing jurors left and right. There's misconduct, there are clashes, and people are leaving the jury. On November 12th, finally, Scott is found guilty. And this is despite the absence of a murder weapon or any physical evidence. He is found guilty of the first degree murder of Lacey and the second degree murder of Connor. When this is announced, there are audible gasps in the courtroom. Shock and dismay from his family because they didn't think that he would get charges against him to stick. They, they didn't think that they were going to be able to get him on these charges. They thought they were going to get to go home with him. Lacey's family because they were relieved. Finally, they were going to get justice for Lacey and Connor. Finally, Scott was going to pay for what he did. Outside, there was a large group of people gathered. There was just this huge crowd and there was a roar of celebration when the announcement was made. They were so happy to hear that Scott was found guilty. December 3rd, after 11 hours of deliberations, the clerk announced that the jury had a unanimous vote to fix the death penalty. They sentenced him to death, all 12 jurors. On March 16th, the judge says Scott will die by lethal injection, but his announcement is overshadowed by chaos in the courtroom. Lacey's family had been given the opportunity to speak and both parents from both sides are screaming at each other. Scott's family is screaming at Lacey's family. Lacey's family is screaming at Scott's family. Lacey's brother is telling Scott that he would consider shooting him and they are just yelling at each other and throwing accusations and causing trouble in the courtroom. And what is Scott doing during all this? He is sitting statically. He is just staring with no emotion while the courtroom melts down around him. He is asked if he wants to get a statement and he says no and he's shipped to San Quentin State University. April 9th, Lacey's family decides they're not going to go through with the civil lawsuit. They said this shortly before a scheduled hearing on the 30th. They decide to drop the suit against Scott. On July 5th, Scott files an appeal. They turn in a 423-page document, and they are complaining that due to all the public spectacle of the case and all 
the people who were saying Scott was guilty before it even went to trial, that it was not fair and that they needed a new trial because it was never going to be fair and it wasn't fair. They also claimed that the judge erred by excluding prospective jurors who opposed the death penalty but said they would consider imposing such a sentence and that certain evidence should have been kicked out of court and that evidence was the findings of a police dog with a poor track record of success. They're saying that should have never been submitted because this dog is not reliable. And I have to say that last complaint is actually a great complaint. That should have never been allowed whatsoever if they knew this dog was not reliable. The unfair trial thing, they need to just get over that. They have said this over and over and it's dismissed each and every single time. You would think they'd give up but they had not at that point. November 24th, 2015, there's a second appeal. And in this appeal, it's almost the exact same thing. Look, the dog should have never been allowed. He was never gonna get a fair trial. But there's one humongous difference in this appeal. And that includes juror Rochelle Nice. She had lied about being involved in earlier legal proceedings and she failed to disclose that she had once been threatened by her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend while she was pregnant. This was huge because this shows that she had an emotion when it came to pregnant women and that she was emotional with, she was just, this just should have been disclosed. There's no way she should have been a juror after being involved in those legal proceedings. On August 24, 2020, Scott's death sentence is overturned because the judge agreed that those prospective jurors were improperly dismissed for their opposition to the death penalty. So the judge says, yeah, no, that's a pretty valid complaint. So we're gonna overturn the death sentence. The court rejects the stance that he was not able to receive a fair trial. Once again, they're like, stop with that. It was a fair trial. The public had already gotten a hold of this. There's nothing we could have done about it. It was a huge case. We are upholding the murder conviction. October 14th, 2020, Scott's convictions are ordered to be re-examined. And this time they have a great argument because they're focusing on the misconduct of Rochelle Nice and her failure to disclose her previous legal entanglements. The Supreme Court announces the case will be sent back to San Mateo County Supreme Court or Superior Court, sorry, to determine if a new trial will be needed. October 23rd, 2020. The prosecutor said, that's fine. Send it back. We're going to go the same course. We're going to seek the death penalty. Meanwhile, Scott Peterson's new lawyer, Pat Harris, who worked alongside his original lawyer, told reporters that an innocent man has been sitting in jail for 15 years. It's time to let him out. On November 6th, via Zoom, Scott appeared in front of the San Mateo Superior Court and waives the right to a speedy trial so he, wa he waives 
the right to a speedy trial of the penalty phase of his case. And this sets a whole new chapter in the saga that is Scott Peterson. This, it just continues to have twists and turns. So, he is asking for a new trial this year. 20 years later, he asked for a new trial. And his lawyer said that at the center of this is Rochelle Nice's lies when she failed to tell the court she had been involved in a domestic violence case. Again, this time they have a very good argument. The lawyer said, it's been discovered since then that during the time, right before the time she served on the jury, she was involved in a domestic violence issue with an ex-boyfriend. She was also involved in a court case involving a woman who was apparently stalking her. And a lot of this occurred while she was pregnant, much as Lacey Peterson was pregnant. So they're arguing that not only was there misconduct, but again, we're going back to that emotion of it all. She has some emotional ties to all this because of the pregnancy that she had and the pregnancy that Lacey had. Scott is getting a new trial. It has been ordered. And as soon as any more information comes out, I will be adding that onto my page. But he has won the right to a new trial because one juror decided she was going to keep a secret from the court. So that totally derailed all the work that the prosecution did and all of those witnesses that went on the stand and helped prove that Scott most likely killed his wife. That is just crazy. I want to go back and talk about Amber Fry just a little bit more because the part she played in this case really sealed the deal for Scott getting convicted. She helped the police in a huge, huge way. And I think that she should actually be commended for that because what she did was brave because she went into that court and faced the man who she cared about and who had lied to her and not to mention the public like some people were angry at her despite not knowing that Lacey was alive I think it just kind of comes with the territory she didn't realize she was a mistress but that is how people saw her and not everyone was mad at her because this was not a typical this is a married man having an affair case because he told her Lacey was dead but some people were mad at her and she faced all of that head on and she went into that courtroom with her head held high and she helped get him convicted for murder. I'm going to actually read some of the transcripts from those calls. For nearly two months she recorded these calls and in one particular call Scott called her while Lacey's family was gathered for a candlelit vigil for her. So here they are honoring Lacey and Scott is talking to his mistress on the phone. He told her during this call that he was celebrating New Year's Eve in Paris on a business trip. And Amber had asked him, are you having a good time? Amber, hey, happy new year. She's like, happy new year. I wanted to call you and she said, thank you. Amber, are you there? I'm here, Amber. And she said, I wish you could hear me. I'm on the, uh, I think that you're there. I'm uh, near the Eiffel Tower. And the New Year's celebration is unreal. This crowd is huge. And she said, the crowd is huge. Amber, I'm here. Amber, if you're there, I can't hear you right now. But I'll call you on your New Year's Eve. 
On January 6, 2003, Scott admits that he had been lying to Amber about traveling to Europe and finally confessed that he is a married man. He said, the girl I'm married to, her name is Lacey, and she said, uh-huh. For the past two weeks, I've been to Modesto with her family, mine searching for her. And she said, okay. She just disappeared and no one knows. She's like, okay now? Where she's been? Scott? And I can't tell you more because I, I need you to be protected for the media. And he said, for your daughter, whose name was, he said her name, but it's actually retracted. And she said, okay. And he's like, okay, they're amazing. And she's like, Scott, are you, are you listening? I am. You came to me earlier in December and told me that you lost your wife. What was that about? She, she's alive. In this same 15-minute phone call, Scott later says that he knows he told Amber on December 19th, this is 15 days before Lacey went missing, that he knows he told her he lost his wife and that he had talked about he was how he was going to spend his first holiday without Lacey. But now he's letting her know it's all a lie. And Amber said, yeah, and I deserve to understand the explanation of why you told me you lost your wife and this was the first holiday you 